Our scripture reading today is from Luke 5, verses 1 through 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats. So they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down on at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished, astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought the boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks to be God. Thanks, India. Good morning. Welcome again to Christ Community. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here. And thanks for being with us this morning. Whether this is your very first Sunday with us or you've been here from uh, the very beginning of the Brookside campus, we're so glad that you're here and uh, taking this time to uh, celebrate with us the good news, the gospel, and what's happening uh, here in our city as well. And so this morning, I want to just pause before we begin uh, looking at this passage to uh, invite us in, through prayer just to attend to God's presence with us, to listen for his voice as we open up this passage of scripture together. So let me do that. Father in heaven, thank you that you have inspired uh, these words by the Holy Spirit that Luke recorded um, and that you've given them to us, that you've preserved them for us. And I pray now that we would attend to your voice, to your presence with us now, and that we would hear from you. We pray this in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, recently, uh, we have been, and I have been, in the middle of doing uh, the Whole30 eating plan. So I don't know if any of you are familiar with the Whole30, but it's a, during the Whole30, for, for 30 days, uh, you don't eat any grains or sugar or dairy or alcohol for, for 30 days. So in other words, it's, you basically cut out all the food that tastes good and gives you any sense of being full uh, for 30 days. Uh, which, okay, that's actually not f- truly, fully true. I mean, we're about 14, 15 days into this, and actually are feeling really great and, and satisfied in the food that we're eating, lots of energy, all of that. Um, but during this, this 30 days, right, like I'm carefully following this eating plan and I'm having to think ahead of time about, okay, if I'm going out to this restaurant, like what should I order? What, what fits on that? And um, how do I need to adapt this? And oh, I need to make sure I pack, pack a salad for lunch tomorrow. And I'm following this eating plan really carefully. But you know, it struck me the other day that even before I started doing Whole30, I was still following an eating plan. It just wasn't a conscious one. It wasn't one that I was actively choosing, but I was still following an eating plan. It was just one that had been set out for me by culture and convenience. I, I hadn't decided to follow that plan on purpose, but I was following a plan in how I ate. 
And I think that's not only true with our eating, right? It's true in every part of our lives. We are all following something or someone that's shaping the patterns of our life, our habits, what we do. And Jonathan Grant, who's an Anglican pastor and writer in New Zealand, makes this observation. He says, modern authenticity encourages us to create our own beliefs and morality, The only rule being they must resonate with ourselves as to who we feel we truly are. And he says, in that context, the worst thing we could do is conform to some social moral code that is imposed on us by society, our parents, the church, or anybody else. I think for many of us, when we, when we read a statement like that, it's like, yeah, I actually I resonate with that sentiment. I don't like the idea of someone from outside of me imposing something on me. It's just ironic in one level, though, that the this, this sense that no one should impose a way of life on us is imposed on us by our culture. Our culture says you should believe that no one should tell you what to believe. Um, and my, my point is simply this. We're all following someone. Whether we are aware of it or not, whether it's on purpose or not, we're all following someone. And, and even if, you know, I don't, I don't follow anyone. I just follow, I, I, just, I just follow myself. <laughs> well, you're still trusting yourself to make decisions for you. As often as we look back in our lives and realize, you know, what, what version of myself do I want making decisions for me? My 15-year-old self? My 25-year-old self? Because I look back at those selves and realize that self had a lot to learn and didn't always make the best choices. So why now do I think here at age 37 that I've got it all figured out? We're all following someone. So the question is not, will we or won't we follow, but who? Who will we follow and what sort of life does that following lead to? What sort of person are we becoming? And what we discover here in Luke chapter 5 is this, that Christians follow Jesus. Christians follow Jesus. Now, that might not be the most shocking statement you've ever heard in church before, right? Christians follow Jesus. Who else are Christians going to follow? But I think the tension comes in this when we start trying to really understand and, and begin to nail down what is exactly does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it really mean to follow Jesus? In, in one way or another, that is really part of the big question that the whole Gospel of Luke is, is answering. Who is this Jesus? What does it mean to follow him? What does it mean to hear his call to be forgiven by him, to come after him, to, to take up our cross and to follow him? That's what all of the Gospels, indeed the entirety of the Bible, is trying to get us to do eventually is to understand what it means to have a relationship and to follow Jesus. But here in Luke chapter 5, we get this very specific moment in Luke's gospel where he shows us Jesus calling someone, an individual, to follow him and what that looks like. And as we walk through that story, we're going to see kind of four key realities, make four observations about what it means to follow Jesus. So last week, as we were continuing in the Gospel of Luke, we we saw Jesus in his hometown of Nazareth proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, this this promise, all these promises from the Old Testament about this Messiah, this person who's going to come and and set people free and bring healing and and liberation and all that. We see him proclaiming that message and saying, I'm that one. This is the one that you've been waiting for. And the people in his hometown, they, they almost kill him for that message. 
And now, Jesus is continuing to go out around the area of the Sea of Galilee, also referred to as the Lake of Gennesaret here. It's the same spot. And here in chapter 5, Luke shows us as Jesus continually in the role of teacher, right? So if you look at verse 1, chapter 5, verse 1, I encourage you to open your Bible if you have one with you or the Pew Bible or pull it up on your phone. But Luke chapter 5, verse 1, on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, on Jesus, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, again, it's another name for the little Sea of Galilee, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he, Jesus asked him to put out a little bit from the land. And he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. So Jesus, at this point, he's starting to draw large crowds of people who want to hear him teach. The idea of them pressing in on him is almost like they're, they're leaning in to try to hear every word he's saying. And there's so many of them, they're, they're starting to actually almost get the picture, they're starting to push him out in, into the lake. There's so many. Kind of the only thing that I can relate that to in my own life, the closest I've been to having that feeling of a crowd pressing in around me was the Royals victory parade back in 2015. Just being in that crowd and feeling like, oh, I'm being kind of pressed in on every side. And hopefully we're going to have another one of those parades this week, right? In Kansas City. And just looking at that picture, though, still makes me a little claustrophobic when I think back to that, that moment. But that's, that's, the, that's kind of the picture. There are people pressing in on Jesus. They're wanting to hear everything he's saying. And Jesus sees a couple of fishermen there washing their nets, and he asks Simon, who's also going to be called Peter later on, if, if he will take him out into the lake so that he can teach from there, which has two benefits. One, Jesus is not going to get crushed. That's benefit number one. Uh, second benefit, though, is the, the lake and the kind of the hills around, kind of they help provide kind of a natural amphitheater, so it's easier for Jesus even to be heard by the crowd. Now, this is not Jesus' first time meeting Simon, though. At the end of Luke chapter 4, uh, we see that Jesus has been to his house, to Simon's house, and actually heals his mother-in-law. Simon's mother-in-law was sick. Jesus is there and heals him. So Jesus knows Simon. Simon has met Jesus before. So even though he's tired out, right, we, we know he's been out fishing all night, we're going to find that out, and we're going to also find out that he was out fishing with no success. So even though he's tired, he's been working for a long time, he helps Jesus. Jesus says, would you take a boat out, Simon? And he says this. And by the way, just a quick aside, I, just, I was struck by the fact that Jesus asked for help in this moment. He asked Peter to help him. And just if, you know, Jesus asked people to help him, probably that means all of us occasionally need to ask for help well. Now, so far in the story, this is just another story of Jesus teaching a large crowd of people. The gospel writers show us this many times, but what happens next shows us that what Jesus is about is not drawing crowds, but calling followers. Jesus is ultimately not about drawing crowds. It's never his goal is just to get a big crowd of people around him. His goal is to call followers. So take a look at verse 4. And when he had finished speaking, Jesus said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon has to be thinking, okay, Jesus, I've heard you're a decent craftsman, you know, made some tables and stuff. Uh, Clearly you're a great teacher. People love hearing you teach. That's obvious. But Jesus, may, like, let's leave the fishing to me. I, you're not, you, don't, you don't understand, Jesus. You fish at night, and in fact, we fished all night last night. We didn't catch any fish. That's why we were cleaning our nets when you got here. 
this is not the time of day you catch fish. That's, you know, the one time you're going to go out and not catch fish is this time of day. But then, but then I, I, maybe it was the look in Jesus' eyes. And maybe it was just out of gratitude for healing his mother-in-law. But Simon says, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when Simon and his crew let down the nets, they caught so many fish that their boat was about to sink. And they end up calling uh, over their friends and they end up filling up two boats full of fish. Now, to me, what's even more surprising in this moment than even the large catch of fish is is Simon's response in in verse 8. He says, but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me. Get away from me, Jesus, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish. So, so why does Peter, why does Peter react this way? And I think it's, he, he sees this kind of miracle moment happen. He recognizes that Jesus is more than just a teacher. He has incredible power. But also it's how Jesus relates to that power that I think Peter instantly realizes that Jesus' priorities are way different than his. Because think about this in the context of Simon's work. Because Simon's not just like, this isn't a hobby for him, like I just go out on Saturday mornings and fish. This is his life. He's a commercial fisherman. This is how his family survives. This is how he makes his money. It's how he helps to provide food for this village. He's a fisherman. This is his business, his work. He's dreamed of catches like this. This is how you get rich as a fisherman is you haul in that many fish. This was, this was the jackpot. And New Testament scholar Kenneth Bailey likens Simon in this moment to a, to a day trader who buys stocks each morning hoping that they'll increase dramatically by the end of the day, right? You buy this stock and all of a sudden in the middle of the day a new story comes out and everybody wants to buy that company and you make this huge profit. That's the kind of moment that Peter has. This is a jackpot moment vocationally for him. And Bailey explains Peter faces a man, Jesus, who wins the fishing lottery but doesn't want it. Stunned, Peter realizes the inadequacy of his own values and priorities. Peter realizes this, is the, this guy could make a killing. And Jesus, you should go into fishing. If this is the kind of catches you can get, you could be so rich. But it's so clear that Jesus is, has an entirely different mission, an entirely different set of priorities. It's not what he's about. And Simon is undone. In a world where people were desperate to provide for their families, Simon encounters a person with a totally different relationship and access to Jesus' power and provision. And he, and he hides his face in shame and he says what, what the lepers say, right? The lepers who go around and say, away from me, get away from me, unclean, unclean. That's basically what Jesus is, Peter is saying to Jesus in this moment. Go away from me. But in that moment, Jesus does just the opposite. He doesn't go away from Jesus or from Peter. He comes closer. He calls Peter closer. He says, don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And that word men there is just the Greek word anthropos, which where we get our word anthropology from. It just refers to all of humanity, men and women, people. From now on, you're going to be catching people. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything. And followed him. 
So the first thing we learn here, first observation is this. We learn that following Jesus means Jesus knows better than you. Following Jesus means that Jesus knows better than you. Isn't that what Simon discovers on this fishing trip with Jesus that morning? Because Peter thinks that he knows everything about fishing. But Jesus knows more. Right? Simon has been happy to listen to Jesus' teaching, but this is the moment that will he trust Jesus when it comes to his work? Will he obey Jesus even when it doesn't make sense? Because the, the only way that we can be followers of Jesus is if we come to the settled conviction that Jesus knows better than us, that he knows more than us, that he is greater than us. All right, so, so last summer, I, I had to go to a GI specialist because it's an intestinal infection thing. I'll spare you all the details on that. But imagine, right, if I had gone into that doctor, he's gone to medical school for all these years, specialized, all this training, and said, you know, here's what I want you to do. I, I know you've been to medical school, but I, you know, I did a little looking on WebMD before I came in. And, and you know, I'm, I'm pretty smart. And instead of it doing it your way, I'd like for you to do it like this. Right? That would be ridiculous. Like, we wouldn't say that to an expert in medicine. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not there, but I've done a little work, and here's what I think we should do. But, you know, we do this with Jesus all the time. Right? We sort of relegate his expertise and authority to just him being like an inspirational sage, right? Someone who can encourage me when I'm feeling down or having a hard day. But Jesus was and is an expert in everything. I mean, he, he spoke the universe into being. He knows how every single thing works. He designed it. He knows more about fishing than expert fishermen. He knows more about parenting, engineering, medicine, psychology. Jesus is the most brilliant person in your field. Where are you most likely to think that you're smarter than Jesus? And maybe you wouldn't say it like that. <laughs> But that's how you live. Like, you know, Jesus, I, you kind of stick to your stuff. I, I've got this. Because there are things that Jesus tells us, asks us, teaches us, invites us to today that may feel at times ridiculous or outdated or even nonsensical. And those are the moments when we're tempted to say, look, Jesus, you're not the expert here. You're not a therapist. You're not a doctor. You're not a politician. You're not a, a lawyer. You, you obviously don't know what you're talking about in this area. So just kind of stay in your lane, bro. But followers of Jesus, disciples, maybe even a better language is, is apprentices, they have come to believe that Jesus knows better. That he is greater and, and they go with him. They follow him, even when it doesn't seem like it makes sense. Like trying to go fishing during the day when you haven't caught anything all night. That's the first thing. Second thing is this. Following Jesus means that Jesus defines you. Following Jesus means that Jesus defines you. And his definition is as unconventional as his fishing tactics, right? And, and for those of us living in a culture where, as Jonathan Grant pointed out at the beginning, the worst thing that we could do is conform to some moral code that's imposed on us by society or our parents or the church or anyone else, the idea of Jesus defining us can seem really scary at best. 
and maybe even oppressive at worst. But again, Jesus' definition of the, of the good life is as unconventional as his fishing approach. And, and you know what? Our definition of the good life is about as conventional and culturally bound as it gets. And the question that all of us have to wrestle with in that then is, which definition leads to full nets, <laughs> leads to life abundant, leads to true freedom, to true rest, to true joy? Right, up until this point, Simon Peter had defined the good life around success in fishing, success at work. And Jesus changes all of that. Now also, I want to pause here though and say this, because it's really important that we don't misunderstand this text. And I think this, this passage has often been misunderstood and misapplied in sort of a way where we read it, we say, well, Jesus said, follow me, and then they left their nets and, and followed him. So if we want to be apprentices of Jesus like, like Peter, as followers of Jesus, then we've got to quit our jobs and, and we all got to go and become missionaries and, and sort of leave our, our life and even our families behind, right? That's a way, that text has been used in that way. We have to really be careful here because Simon is going to play a really unique role as one of the 12 apostles, right? He's going to have this incredibly unique role in the history of salvation and the role in the, in the church. And Jesus is calling him in this very specific way. But most often when Jesus called people to follow them and heal them, they, they actually just remain right where they are in their town, in their occupation, and so, for example, in Luke chapter 8, we actually see this. Jesus heals a man who is demon-possessed. He was demonized. And, and this guy, actually, after he's healed, he actually begs to go with Jesus. But Jesus says, but Jesus sent him away, verse uh, 38, saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. Okay, so if becoming Jesus' apprentice, a follower, if following him doesn't mean quitting my job and doing all that, what... what well, what does it mean? Well, it means saying goodbye to the lifestyle and pattern and habits that you're used to and discovering instead the life that you were created for, the life you were designed for, the life that you long for, right where you're at. It, it's a total release of your former identity. So that you no longer think of yourself first and foremost as a, as a mom or a special ed teacher or a NICU nurse or a high school student or an athlete or a musician or someone who wears Athleta or Anthropology or who drives a Tesla or a Toyota or an American or a Kansan or a Missourian. You know, those things are all remain true of you, of course, but those are no longer the deepest and most true thing about who you are. We leave our nets and follow Jesus when we start letting him define and shape our money, our sexuality, our influence, our free time, our goals, our habits, right? You, you can tell that Jesus has started to define your identity when your habits, how you actually live, begins to change. Attorney and author Justin Early puts it this way. He says, paying all of our spiritual attention to the message of Jesus while ignoring his practices has not only led people like me into devastating life crises, it has also created a country of Christians whose practical lives are divorced from their actual faith. He says, how else do you explain a country of Christians who preach a radical gospel of Jesus while assimilating to the usual contours of American life? Are you letting Jesus define you at the level of your calendar? 
right, at the level of your habits, at the level of your routines. Because Jesus wants to step into those places, and that's where our lives are actually lived, is in those places of how much sleep do I get? <laughs> how over-scheduled or not is my calendar? Do I have place to have relationships with people that matter? Margin in my budget to give? All of those things. That's where following Jesus gets real. It's not just this kind of spiritual, ethereal thing. It actually affects our calendar, our budget, our habits. So have you said goodbye to what you're used to? To hurry, to worry, to anxiety for what you were created for, what you were designed for, the life that you long to live. So following Jesus means, yes, that he knows better than you, that he defines you. And, and third, though, it also means that Jesus commissions you. Because Jesus says to Simon Peter, you are now going to be fishing for, for people. You're going to take this old this kind of vocational metaphor of catching fish, and now you're actually going to be catching people. Bailey points out that Peter goes from catching and killing fish to now catching people and bringing them to new life. And for Peter, this, again, this for him and his unique moment with Jesus involved actually leaving and physically following after Jesus as one of the 12 apostles. Again, for the formerly demonized man, it meant going back to his home and declaring everything that God had done for him. But no matter the story, no matter the context, appreciating and apprenticing and following Jesus means inviting others to follow him too. And, and, and let me just say here in this moment, this, that's a hard thing for me. It's one thing for me to stand up in front of all of you in, in a room and, and talk about Jesus here, but the next door neighbor, person across the street, it's a lot harder. I think it's hard for a lot of us. And, and I think in one part is because we wonder, is it even right or kind for me to impose my beliefs on others? Or maybe even we feel like, no, I, I really do want to do this, but we wonder, or at least won't that be what they're thinking? This, man, you shouldn't try to impose your beliefs on me. Recently, I've been really helped by Rebecca McLaughlin uh, on this front and another, under other topics. Rebecca earned her PhD from Cambridge University and has spent her life helping others to come and follow after Jesus. And in her award-winning book, Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion, she addresses this question of whether or not we should actually try to persuade other people to follow Jesus. And, and she answers that question by pointing out it all depends on, on how we think about the question or the statement, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Is that statement in the category of my grandmother's cooking is better than yours? Or is it in the category of smoking will kill you? How we understand the category that that statement belongs in, that claim belongs in, will affect how we answer that question. And she goes on to share the story of a doctor she was working with who was an expert in breast cancer, but who raised this objection about being persuaded or having others persuade uh, him or him persuading others about the message of Christianity. And, and she asked him as a thought experience, imagine you're treating a woman from a rural village who is in an under-resourced country who has a great risk of, of getting breast cancer but, but refuses to have a mammogram. Would you try to persuade her? And she points out that in matters of life and death, we view persuasion as an act of love, not oppression. 
And again, this doesn't have to look like shouting with a bullhorn on a street corner. I'm not encouraging any of you to get on to power and light today with a sign and a sandwich board. And in fact, in our cultural context, it probably shouldn't look like that. But one really key way to do this is through hospitality. By building relationships with people in our home or school. Uh, just look what happens at the end of the chapter when Jesus calls another one of the 12 apostles, Levi, who will also be known as Matthew, the author of the Gospel of Matthew. Just let's listen to what Jesus says here. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. Levi follows Jesus, and the very first thing he does is throw a huge party, invite all of his friends to come and meet Jesus too. Hospitality is such a key part of this commissioning that we have to tell others about the one in whom we have found life. How are we using our homes, our workplaces, our schools as places of hospitality, developing relationships where people can encounter Jesus? So following Jesus means that he knows better, that he defines you, that he commissions you, but it also means, and this is the foundation of it all, it also means that Jesus wants to be with you. Jesus wants to be with you. Simon Peter, right, he encounters Jesus and the moment where he really begins to understand who this person is, his reaction is to say, Jesus, go away from me. I'm not worthy of you. I'm unclean. Just get away. And Jesus does the opposite. In that moment, he actually comes closer to, G to Peter. He invites Peter to come and be with him. He says, Peter, I want you. Come follow me. Come and be with me. Right? And in the Old Testament, in, in the law, in the Old Testament, there was these categories of, of clean and unclean. It was all part of people beginning to understand about the holiness of God. And in that context of clean and unclean things, an unclean thing could contaminate something that was clean. But it didn't work the other way around until Jesus comes on the scene. Because right? Peter's operating in this framework of clean and unclean. And in, that mind, and in his mindset, right, if I'm unclean, if I'm dirty, then if I, Jesus, you got to get away from me. I'm going to contaminate you. And that was true until Jesus comes. And Kenneth Bailey points out, Peter's attitude was clear. The unclean will defile the clean on contact. Jesus, though, had another view. For Jesus, the clean Jesus, can purify the unclean Peter. And all that was needed was contact. Do you believe that Jesus actually wants to be with you? That in him you are fully known, which is scary, right? He knows everything about you. In him you are fully known, but you are also fully loved, fully known and fully loved, fully forgiven, fully cleansed. You see, at the heart of apprenticeship with Jesus is being with him. And I think sometimes that's where the language of following can actually give us the wrong kind of imagination or picture. It's almost like you imagine following someone, like they're, they're down there and I'm back here and I'm, I'm kind of following them from a distance. That is not what Jesus is asking. When he says, come, follow me, he's saying, come and be with me. Learn how to live life with me. Walk beside me. Learn from him. Be known by him. 
It's an invitation. He wants to be with you. I started off talking this morning about the Whole30 plan. And so in a way, I'm following uh, Melissa and Dallas Hartwig. Those are the people who came up with this plan. Uh, but I have yet to uh, be invited to come and be with them, right? And, and I'm certainly not worthy of their level of fitness or beauty. But that's where Jesus is so radically different. He wants to be with you. He is calling you to be with him. And the only requirement is to know that you're not worthy, but that you are wanted. Of course you're not. None of us are worthy, but we are wanted. You are chosen. You are loved. And when we realize that we are sinners, when you have had that moment of saying, you know what, Jesus, just get away. I'm, I'm not worth it. I'm not worthy of you. That's the moment. That very moment is when Jesus invites us closer. In the moment when you feel like you've blown it, you've made the biggest mistake, that's the moment when Jesus says, come, come be with me. I want you. And that is incredibly good news. Christians, follow Jesus. Will you? Are you? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you that you have sent Jesus and I pray that each of us would follow after him because you have called us and you want us and you desire to be with us. Would you set us free from patterns and habits and allegiances and loves that are leading us into places that just destroy us? Would you set us free to follow the one who can give us life abundant both now and forever? Pray that you would do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.